welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Moore Cronin. And I'm Justin Clark. And today's topic is something that's always announcing itself in the background of our lives, in our health concerns, in our taking care when we cross the street, in the stories of the lives of others, something that people try not to think about, but that we spend a lot of our times thinking about and making an effort to prevent, and that is death. So in today's episode, we will not only talk about some of the great questions of death, but also how death may change in the future as we have new technologies and as the health span increases relative to the lifespan. So as we get into today's topic, I guess the first natural question is, is thinking about death useful? Is it useful for us to talk about death and have this as one of our episodes on Hence the Future? So, yes, just to answer it quickly, but the the reason I think it is important to think about death is because it's it's one of those things where if you take it seriously, you can completely change how you live your life. Mm. So it's not uncommon to hear a story about somebody who gets a terminal diagnosis of cancer and upon hearing this news they realize they have probably less than a year to live they completely change their life they do all the things that they've wanted to do they quit their job and let's say they go work in the peace corps like they go to you know some third world country to help people and that's what they've wanted to do their whole life they just never pulled the trigger yeah. And and the unfortunately the terminal diagnosis was the catalyst to get there but if you can actually think about life and think about death in in this in this way and knowing that we're all going to die we don't know how long each of us has we can change how we live now to maximize our happiness and to maximize everything that we've wanted to but never actually pulled the trigger yeah i completely agree i i think that by thinking about death or at least by having the right perception of what death is and what that means it prevents us from making choices that are short-sighted and like one example that sam harris gives is road rage you know the quintessential example of losing yourself in the moment when really it's not that big of a deal and when you have this intense road rage, you just want to, you know, obliterate the other person. You get so wrapped up in it. But if you just stop for a moment and you think that someday I'm going to die, someday that other person in that car whom I know nothing about is also going to die. And we have this one beautiful moment right now where the sun is shining and my family is alive, my loved ones are alive, I'm healthy, I'm not in a hospital bed, I'm in a, you know, it's kind of like counting your blessings sort of a thing. Um, So I think it prevents you from having stupid, short-minded, getting wrapped up in the moment, and then it also, like you said, it helps you to focus on that which matters most in your life. So, I mean, I know for my own self, I had an injury with my hand, And it made me really realize my own mortality. And through that, I 
just made a lot of changes in my life that I probably should have made anyways. Like I made a career change. I really took up yoga and meditation, whereas I hadn't been doing any of that before. So I think it definitely has that effect. And, you know, the stages of death for someone who is, let's say, diagnosed with a terminal illness, the five classic stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I think the key is if we can all walk around having already gone through those stages and we all have acceptance of death while we're walking around, I mean, that would be the ideal scenario because you could go at any time and you would feel content with how you've lived up until now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the other thing too is if we can move to this acceptance phase, we can move quickly through the stages that are more uncomfortable to be in but it's important to realize for everyone we can't just ignore it it's almost always psychologically damaging to just ignore stuff that you should deal with and ignore grief um but yeah it's really interesting too to see how different people go through these stages like Mm. across cultures yeah so one of my favorites you know, I'll talk about some of the more interesting ones before talking about how I think the the U.S. has kind of detached themselves right. from this process. But one of the one of the favorites I have is Mexico and their Day of the Dead festival. So one of so basically for everyone that that's listening, Day of the Dead is a three day festival. So the first night is called All Hallows' Eve, where everybody honors all the children who have ever died. So that's the first step in the festival. And then day two is All Saints' Day, and this is when all adult spirits come back, and then we can celebrate all of the adults that have ever died. And then the final day to cap off the festival is All Souls' Day, and All Souls Day is when all your family members come. And this this is, you know, if you've ever seen that cool Pixar movie called Coco, which is all about Day of the Dead, mm-hmm. um, they dress up and they go out to the cemeteries and give all their loved ones that have passed flowers and everything else, you know, just decorate everything up and really celebrate their families that have died. And, and it's like a, a celebration of the death rather than this right. kind of detachment that the U.S. has. And, you know, the U.S. isn't alone in this. A lot of modern cultures have a detached view of the process of death. It's right. like, almost like we're in, we're in the denial phase that people die and that our loved ones die. Right. I mean, the U.S. has Halloween but it's yeah. com- gone so far from its original purpose, which was mm-hmm. more similar to Dia de los Muertos. Mm-hmm. And when you st- said that we're in the denial phase in the U.S., I definitely think that's true. I mean, in Roman times, you know, one classic image that you would see in any dining room in a Roman house would be a skeleton. And typically it would be the skeletons actually eating and drinking And the idea was that while you're sitting there with your family eating and drinking, you can look over and see the people who have gone before you, your your dead ancestors, 
who are eating and drinking and it reminds you of the value of life and of the brevity of life so mm-hmm. that you can live more fully for the time that you have here. So they made a point of, of making that omnipresent in their culture. And yeah. I, guess, I guess in like a very high level view of just different views of death, I, I think in the main world religions, like you know Christianity, Islam, and to some extent Judaism, but Judaism is kind of a unique case, mm-hmm. they view death as basically you live one life, you only live one life, and based on that life, the whole rest of eternity is determined for you. So whether you will experience bliss forever in heaven or whether you will experience torment forever in hell. And so their idea is that, like, you know, obviously the afterlife is way more important because it's eternity, but life is also very important because that determines sort of where you go. Um, and uh, that that leads, sounds very stressful. <laughs> it sounds very exactly. And the other view, which is more of like the you know cold-hearted Richard Dawkins type scientist view, is the mm-hmm. materialist view, where you know when you're dead, you're dead. Basically, it's just nothingness. Yeah, and it's and it's kind of like oh yeah, we're some random flash of consciousness that who knows why it's occurring, probably just random. And then you're just dead forever. And it's just very like, and so I think a lot of people, they're not happy with either of those solutions. Mm -hmm. They want something or they just feel intuitively that what's true is probably more similar to what happens in nature where there's the cyclicality of life. I mean, I think the, the Hindus and the Buddhists were much closer when they talk about the wheel, the recurring life of death and rebirth and, I think people get a little bit too hung up on reincarnation as being a literal thing. Yeah, like your consciousness. Right, like your consciousness completely intact will become a squirrel's consciousness the next life or whatever else. But it's not really like that. It's like, yeah, maybe part of your conscious energy goes towards a tree. Part of it sits around a while, you know, before going anywhere. Part of it goes into, you know, whatever. Um but I think that that makes much more sense to me because with the whole world, with everything that we're seeing going on right now, we're very much, human beings are very much like leaves that in the fall wither and die, fall from the tree, rot, become humus so that other plants may grow yeah. and they live. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of beautiful to think about the circle of life like that because this is something that we have in common with literally every single biological organism. Right. There's there's nothing that lives forever biologically. And and the beauty of that is it once we die and we are able to decompose, and I have thoughts about this we'll get into, but and we are able to decompose and re-merge with the earth that we came from and you know the let's say the fungi break us down because they're the big decomposers of Mm -hmm. of the world then once we're decomposed and converted into usable molecules and nutrients by plants and everything else then we first our molecules become plant molecules and then herbivores eat the plants right and then predators eat the plants 
that we became that the herbivores ate and well sorry yeah, the it's, it's just like in the lion king i mean the way that mm-hmm. that you know simba's father explains to him is the same way that that really exists in nature right and, and it, it is it is notable that our society has gone so far from that that we actually need to be reminded of the fact that this is all cyclical and we're meant to die to make way for new life. Yeah, and this kind of brings up the the denial point again that a lot of modern cultures have is we're extending life of our family typically much longer than the natural lifespan that they might have had because that's when we when we start to see people that live for 5 years basically in and out of the hospital miserable and in pain. Right. And we're just trying to keep them alive. Like we don't want them to like re remerge with the the earth. I mean, you know, not yeah. everyone thinks that way. Most people think they just don't want them to die and go off somewhere. You know, it's easy to hold on to. Yeah, I thought I think I saw a statistic where it was something like 80% of people said they would prefer to die at home in bed surrounded by loved ones as opposed to in a hospital, but something like 85 or 90% of people end up dying in a hospital bed with their consciousness dimmed from morphine and mm-hmm. just sort of barely holding on for weeks on end. And it's just, yeah. I mean, that just can't be the best way to go. And, and I feel like with just the state of mind that the doctors are in is like, if you die, they failed. But yeah. how can you think that way if everyone's going to die eventually? It yeah. would be better to die well and right. to focus on how can we give this person a dignified death or how can we make this person's death in line with what they want and, and the comfort that they want. Yeah. And there's a lot of really interesting voices in this space. Uh, one of those people is B.J. Miller. He's a Princeton uh, psychiatrist who, when he was in his senior year at Princeton, he was messing around on train cars with some friends. And I guess he was wearing a metal watch. And once he got too close to this electric, uh, some some sort of um, high energy uh, wire or something on the top of the train, the electricity arced to his watch and blew off all three other limbs of his. Wow. So he is not, he has one arm that's still pretty mutilated. That's the one where he was wearing the watch, I believe. And then everything else, you know, is gone because of that. But he, he now works as one of the leading voices in palliative care, like end of life care and making sure people are happy towards the end of their life. And he has a lot of really good podcasts. He has a TED Talk out uh, that I would encourage listeners to go watch. Um, it's really, really interesting, to, especially from his perspective. Like mm. He has a, a unique perspective because he went through these um, stages. Uh, he didn't, you know, he... He didn't know if he was even going to be able to see again because I think yeah. he was blind for a while. So he was just in a vegetative state wow. for a long period of time. But he went through these. And since he has this credibility, 
he can talk to people who are dying in a way that helps them really accept where they're going and get into this acceptance phase. Um, but yeah, it's just really interesting to hear voices um, that, you know, people that have gone through stuff like this. Yeah, so let's let's go on to the next question. I think we already sort of answered it, but is dying bad, good, or neutral? And I think this gets into what your concept of death is because that's what it all really depends on. But in as a general phenomenon, I would say that death is a good thing in the sense that it allows for a renewal. And it's not just a renewal in the sense of keeping the cyclicality going, but it's also keeping the magic of existence. And mm-hmm. when you're a kid, this is one thing, Alan, Alan, this is how Alan Watts explains it. He says that when you're a kid, everything you do has magic in it. And we talk a lot about this in the future of reality, where everything you do is, everything is completely new to you. There's magic in the markings on the, on the wood floor, all the mundane things that you wouldn't think to give a second thought as an adult have magic in them. And as you get older, you lose that magic as your view of everything is more goes through the lens of survival and profit. And you just sort of view everything as like, okay, how can, how can this help me survive? How can this help me profit, help me get more resources, help me spread my ideas, you know, whatever it is. And through that, the magic is lost. And so the purpose of life in general, because you may as well just not have any life, it may as well just be a dead universe, so the argument goes, Mm -hmm. that it's a much more amusing arrangement for nature to constantly be renewing itself and to constantly be experiencing its own magic through different individuals, not always through the same individuals. Because think about how much more boring it would be if it was always the same individuals that just lived forever and you never got to shake things up. You never got to shake up the lottery ball, you know, all the lottery balls and and get a new combination. So it's in that sense, it's, it's a good thing. Also, if you did not have people die, we would overcrowd ourselves very quickly. Yeah. And and that's for any organism, not even just people. Exactly. And, you know, we may eventually get to some point where we can fit infinite, conscious beings on a hard drive or like you know near infinite conscious beings on a hard mm-hmm. drive in some digital version of of heaven like mm-hmm. they sort of have an inception um, which is certainly <laughs> yeah. possible but if there's people walking around healthily like they are right now i mean we just the simply the world would would not be able to take everyone living and having the same amount of kids just like any species on earth would overcrowd itself if there was no death and renewal process. So in that sense, I would say death is good. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. The fact that Earth has this cycle of life means it's probably important. And I think if it, when humans have the hubris to go against what nature has pre-programmed, it's almost always a bad idea. Right. And, and the fact that, and I don't think we fully understand the, or fully grasp the weight and the importance of death, because the other thing about, um, what you, to kind of touch on a point you made is when you can recycle 
the types of conscious beings that are living let's you know from the perspective of earth if if there's a diversity of conscious beings that is better in terms of just overall evolution than having very specific sets of genes for example or very specific um, organisms and this diversity or biodiversity is one of the most important things when it comes to evolution and fully evolving to the ultimate state or if there even is an ultimate state at least moving towards um, an optimal you know set of organisms right i mean it's just like in any company where it's not like you reach a certain point and you're like okay this is great we're doing great let's just keep everything exactly as it is <laughs> Let's not, you know, we don't need to hire any more people. We don't need to fire anyone. We don't need to change our practices. Like, let's just, we're good now. We're good forever. Mm-hmm. Like, that's basically what you're assuming if you want to live forever and, and not have this renewal process. So I guess the next, the next question I have is, what does it mean to die well? How can someone die well? And this is a topic that in almost every Hemingway novel is very front and center so I've thought about it a lot but I'd like to get your thoughts on what does it mean for you or for anyone to die well to have a good death so I think first and foremost well see I'm I say this but I think there's always exceptions but for me personally I don't want to die in pain right that's kind of like the big thing the not having pain at the end of life is an important thing for me or if it is painful at least i want to be able to have some sort of mental state where i'm completely accepting of this pain and i'm just in almost i don't want to say bliss but i'm i want to be confident that what i did in my life was useful and productive and i was happy right Mm. so i just as long as you die and you feel like you've done the things that you've wanted to do, then I think that's a, a good way to go. But I also know that there are stories of warriors, right? Like that warriors might die in pain and they might, you know, almost a very uh, brutal ending, but they wouldn't want to go any other way. Right. 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 It's, it's like you want to die doing the thing you love, love rather huh. than make it past that thing. Um, yeah. You just die young, doing exactly what you wanted to do. You don't want to go through the stages. like You don't want to go on the decline. You just want to die at your peak, basically. And I feel like that's kind of a warrior's death. So there's a lot of different ways yeah. that you can die. Well, that's interesting. I mean, your first comment about wanting to be in a state of near bliss when you die, in the Hindu and Buddhist tradition, The only way you can escape the wheel and get out of this rat race is Mm. by being in a state of Satori when you die. Mm. So being in that state that lots of yogis and meditators talk about where you just feel at one with the universe Mm. and you're totally at peace, that is the state that you must be in in order to leave this wheel and go into mm-hmm. nirvana. And so I think that's a good indicator that if you can have that state of mind, that is the best way. And for me, uh, pain was not was not one of my um, 
qualifiers. I mean, it would certainly be better not to have pain, but I think the key is how you respond to that pain. And if you are able to put it in the right context and still maintain some, some, uh, state of Satori and, and feeling of Mm -hmm. oneness, then that's, that's great. The, The point you brought up about the warrior's death is really interesting too, because that's really about how, giving meaning to your death and to your suffering. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about some of the examples in religion. Like, for example, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about what does the story of Christ really mean? Why do we value the story of Christ's life so much? And really it's because he was willing to undergo the most unbearable suffering for the sake, not of his own, not for his own sake, but for the sake of others. And not just like his loved ones, but people who he didn't even know, the whole human race. And that, there's real honor in that. There's real nobility in burying a cross and suffering for a greater cause and sacrificing your physical body. That's something that we value. And then even in, uh, in Islam, which is, you know, the most contentious major religion, but mm-hmm. the, the, you know, Muhammad was a warrior and he very much believed in the warrior's death. And so that's where the whole idea of jihadism came from. And mm-hmm. even though today it is pretty much synonymous with terrorism, you could imagine that back in his days when during the crusade or, or even during the crusades when you know, that's not like one side was better than the other. They're both doing terrible things. You could see why it makes sense to have a doctrine where to die a warrior's death for a greater cause is the ultimate way to get into to heaven. And so in that sense, if you take it metaphorically, there might actually be a good teaching there where it's like the same sort of teaching that they have in Christianity where so long as you have some greater purpose behind your suffering and behind your death, you can die well. Yeah, I mean that. I really like that. Um, I, I've actually not um, thought about that about uh, Islam either. I I didn't realize that Muhammad was a warrior, and you know that that is the genesis of a lot of the ideas today, which is really yeah. interesting to think about. I mean, I think the problem there is that too many too many people take it literally now about Mm -hmm. jihad as being like oh no you have to actually go kill people who have other religions in order to to, it's more i think it'd be better taken as you should have some greater purpose in mind while you're dying right would be a better way of taking taking that lesson Hmm. yeah that's that's really interesting and and then but so i know uh i think the next question even though it's not in the exact order but I think we should go into best ways to die and worst ways just because I think that's related to sort of how do you die well. Yeah, um, right. And this this was interesting because you actually brought up some of the ways that people typically say, you know, when you're scouring the internet for, oh, what's the best way to die? Well, first of all, you see the suicide hotline. So if anyone here is considering suicide, right. please get help. We just we need to say that. Um, oh, definitely. But as far as what are, you know, just scientifically, what would be the best, least painful way to die? From my research, it seems like the least painful way to die would be to have sudden cardiac arrest in your sleep. Or Mm. for me personally, I would say to have sudden cardiac arrest 
while meditating, like while in a state near Satori, that would be my mm. personal choice for how to die. Because sudden cardiac arrest, it just means that your, your heart stops beating. It just suddenly right. stops. And I almost imagine it as like, you know, you're 100 years old, 120 years old, whatever it is, you're sort of meditating in full lotus position. You have lived a good life. You're totally at peace. You're in the acceptance phase. You have, yeah. maybe you have an heir. You have children who can carry on the torch that you've gone. Any final words you have to say, you can, you've said them. And now you just sort of let yourself drift off. And at that moment where you have the most acceptance of your fate, your heart just stops and you just depart this realm yeah wow i mean that sounds really poetic honestly <laughs> um another one that i'm curious to hear so you know the story uh, more than i do but was it alan watts who was on his deathbed that you know he he wanted to go in a very specific no way? that was aldous huxley aldous huxley okay yeah. adores a perception right all right so aldous um, huxley was near death anyways his final death was considered a suicide even mm -hmm. though it's contentious how much that was because he was sort of near death anyways but right. basically his final words were to his wife he said 100 milligrams mescaline intramuscular and so his wife basically injected him with all of the psychedelics and he just drifted off and it was even i think she gave it to him at 12 p.m mm -hmm. it actually i think it was actually uh it actually was lsd i believe okay but, but she injected it into his musculatory system at around 12 p.m and then gave him another dose at around 1 30 p.m and then by around 5 30 p.m he was dead so obviously no one knows when, what went on inside of his own conscious mind at the time, you know, through that mm -hmm. four hour voyage. But one can imagine, and, given the nature of who Aldous Huxley was and what he believed, that it may have been quite an ideal way to depart this world. Yeah. I mean, just to go on, it's almost like going on a final journey, right? That, that sounds yeah. like a very, like... We, we don't need to get into it right now, but that seems like a really low risk in a non-contentious way to use psychedelics to kind of go on this final journey. Yeah. Before, well, yeah. Well, I've heard multiple people who have never tried psychedelics and they're mm -hmm. afraid to that when I when I've like brought up the question of end of life psychedelic care Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, yeah, well, you might as well. You're going to die anyways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in that sense, obviously, there's no risk. There's no risk in really trying anything when you're about to die because you're about to die. So, you know, mm -hmm. but I think in the sense that it's helpful is because it reminds you of how you are connected to everything else. Right. Especially with psilocybin or something that's natural that grows out of the ground. But also with, you know, I mean, mescaline is also natural dmt naturally occurs in the brain and in other animals like toads and lsd is very close to compounds that are natural and naturally occurring 
But the, the commonality of all of them is if you listen to the future of reality, it brings us to a more lantern style of consciousness where you're just perceiving raw inputs from every direction. And for whatever reason, with psychedelics, any DNA-based organism, anything that's living, just comes to life in a way that you are, for sh- you are certain that everything is inhabited with a spirit. And right. it's like you can look at leaves or you can look even at the sky or, or, or any mm-hmm. any part of nature and it has this depth to it and it makes you feel like you can communicate even with a tree. You can communicate with a leaf. And if you can communicate with those things and if you realize that we're all just we're all just squiggles <laughs> <laughs> that are resonating on similar wavelengths, uh-huh. then that's a lot easier for you to accept. Right. Getting out of your current squiggle form and going back into the squiggly abyss so that other squiggles may assemble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really like that. And um, I would probably echo that as one of the better ways to go because you are just going on this final journey. Right. Yeah. Even if you've never taken psychedelics in your life, you're this this mental journey that you can go on and we can talk about some of the research being done in this space too um but this this final mental journey just sounds like almost in a way like the warrior's death but more of like the the death after a hero's journey like the spiritual warrior's death yeah yeah it's really interesting to think about what can happen um but to just, you know, talk about some things that are going on in this space. So the NIH published a study. Well, it's actually in the Journal of Palliative Care or Palliative Medicine. But now psychedelics are starting to be taken seriously as mm. an end-of-life treatment. So this this meta-analysis analysis in the Journal of Palliative Medicine called taking psychedelics seriously study it's a meta-analysis meaning that it covers it it kind of overviews a bunch of other studies Mm -hmm. related to psychedelics at the end of life but they particularly look at psilocybin which is uh, magic mushrooms mdma which is i don't know if it's exactly ecstasy but it's kind of what we think of as uh, ecstasy and then ketamine Mm -hmm. so one of the things that specifically with MDMA is you feel this, and I don't have experience with this, but if you experience this sense of love for right, everything around right. you, and you can, there's a whole bunch of stories. Uh, Sam Harris is one who talks about MDMA. Yeah. That was his first introduction into psychedelics. But when you, when patients were given MDMA at the end of life, they just felt this, this content with everything Hmm. and and this love for everybody that's been in their life and everything that's affected where they are today just the infinite number of things that happened in their life that brought them to be exactly where they are right now they just felt this genuine love for yeah and and that was that was a common theme among the mdma users and the other thing is 70 or 80 percent um they so 70 or 80 percent of the users that were given mdma 
thought that that completely changed their perspective on death like yeah. they they weren't anxious anymore they weren't depressed they they completely went through all of the stages and they're now in the acceptance phase and it's just a yeah. it was a really powerful thing for them to experience yeah i remember one study where there was there was a woman who had terminal cancer and she her whole there were tumors over her entire body pretty much and so she was near the very last stages and i can't remember if it was psilocybin or lsd that she took she took one of the two and she said she had this profound experience where her cancer was like this darkness like this dark force that she could see visually and then she could see her life her life force as this light that was sort of mm -hmm. emanating all around and she realized that the the black force of her cancer was not necessarily evil and it wasn't even unnatural and then after that she had this experience of feeling like she was underneath the ground among the roots of the trees and that it was completely peaceful there and it wasn't it wasn't well, it wasn't necessarily good or bad or peaceful yeah. or not peaceful. It just, it just was, was natural. It just was yeah. the way that it should be. Like, so, you know, the Buddhists talk about death and the unborn. You know, like, how did you feel before you were born? You know, that's how you'll feel yeah. when you're yeah. dead, basically. And she realized that when she had taken this trip. And when she came out of the trip, she was completely at peace with her death and she became almost like something like a living saint and her relatives would come around and it had this profound impact, not just on her, but on all the people around her. And I think that that shows that the power of changing how we perceive death at the very end of our lives, it has the power to impact all of society, not just the people who themselves are dying. And the other interesting thing is that while she was going through this whole hero's journey of spirituality mm -hmm. apparently she was just crying and sobbing and snot like tons of snot was just coming out of her <laughs> nose and it was almost like she had cleansed herself like physically afterwards and she just mm. felt like like because i think a lot of times when people are near death they've got so many layers of worry that they kind of forget yeah. about what's the most important thing that they should be thinking about like right. they've got layers of, oh, well, I got to think about this treatment and this might react badly with this other thing and I'm supposed to be doing this. And it's like you've got all these cares and all this information that gets piled on top of you that you forget maybe to reflect on what's most important in your life. And, and I think what these psychedelics help to do is they help you strip away all of these layers. So what's truly most meaningful to you, what you really need to work through comes to the surface you can work through it, and then afterwards you feel much more at peace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and to kind of talk about the opposite side of the same coin, so we, we've talked a little bit about how, much, how the dying experience their own death, but one of the overlooked things is how do the living experience the death of their loved ones. Right. And this, this is, I think even harder to this is a harder topic because you you're going to go on without this other person that that you cared about and 
the, you know, it's, this is a really hard topic and, you know, it kind of breaks me up thinking about sometime just cause yeah. it's, it's so heavy. Um, but the, I think there are probably a lot of similar things that you can do as the person who's going to continue as the people who are going to continue living. Um, and you could even take the, you could even go on journey, you know, I don't think there's any research, but one might in, you know, completely up to their own agency. We're not telling you exactly what to do, obviously, but might, you might even go on a journey with the dying. That's right. Interesting. I don't know if that's even possible, but, um, or if that's, you know, a good idea or a bad idea. I right. think that well, I mean, typically probably... your, your journey is within your own mind anyways. I mean, right. maybe well, you could, maybe, although maybe if you're together, it would coalesce in yeah. that way. And there's, there's certain, like the MDMA experience, right? Yeah, that's different yeah. from like right. an LSD or a, a psilocybin experience. Right. Um, but well, it, it's th- more of a togetherness and a connectedness type of loving. Yeah. Well, I think experience. the the fear of death or the trauma of someone dying from the perspective of someone else having mm-hmm. it happen to, like let's say your parent dies or even mm-hmm. your grandparent or your friend or whatever it is, yeah. I think there's really two root causes of that suffering. One is just simply the loss of that person. You no right. longer have this person in your life that you can count on that you get mm-hmm. to hang out with, that you get to take in their pearls of wisdom. But the other thing is that by someone else dying close to you, it reminds you of your own mortality and all of your right. own fears about death and, oh, shit, like, have I lived a good life? Like, what should I have mm-hmm. done up until this point? How do I stack up against my ancestors or my peers or my mentors or idols or whatever? All of that comes to the front. And... Mm-hmm. In some sense, it can be a great thing because it may help you reconsider and reprioritize your life like we were talking about in the beginning of the episode. Or it can make you spiral into a downward trajectory where you're just depressed and nothing has meaning. You know, if I'm going to die one day, then why why even get up in the morning? Um, So how you respond to it is is crucial. Right. Yeah, and I, so one of my best friends, you know, he's he's experienced something extremely heavy like this, and he talks about how the, you can kind of take it in one of two ways, exactly like you were saying, it either makes you stronger, or you, you don't necessarily, you don't have the capacity to deal with it, and then you spiral out, spiral out of control, um, but there's, there's this, sort of resilience that I think humans have that anybody can overcome something like this and anybody like if you're in this this state of complete misery and depression like we have the capacity to get out of it it Mm -hmm. it might not seem like it from the perspective of the depressed but it's possible like it's always possible to to get out of where you are even even if you only have a little light you can only see one foot in front of your face there is something beyond that that you can get to and i think that's just a an, an important message to talk about when you know we're we're talking about this really heavy subject like there is there is a way to get beyond like where you feel right now mm-hmm. it just might not seem like it in the moment yeah 
And all the typical advice that people give is very true. Getting out, Mm -hmm. getting out of the house, exercising, having a standard sleep cycle, like going to sleep Mm -hmm. and waking up at the same time each day, Um, you know, being with your family in times of distress. All of these things are really important. So if anyone listening is going through something like that, that's that's what I would recommend. Yeah. And just yeah, just talk to people, even if it's a therapist or somebody, you know, that there's a lot of people you can talk to and a lot of people are willing to talk to. It's just a really hard subject to bring up, you know, Right. that was one of the interesting things about. um, So Tim Ferriss had he kind of came out at some point in the last a couple of years where he wrote a big article on his blog where he talked about him actually, you know, considering suicide at one point. Hmm. Um, and, and this, this article for anyone listening is called practical thoughts on suicide. Um, but basically he, in the moment, like he was extremely depressed, but beyond, you know, once he figured out that people truly care about him, people that he doesn't know truly cared about him just being alive and continuing to live. He, he got out of his rut and realized that, you know, that's not the best thing. The best thing I can do is to make this world better. The best thing, the reason I should be, I'm here is to serve others and to continue this, this life, you know, making, life for others better and optimizing yeah and i think it is there is a particularly special challenge for celebrities um you know for instance pete davidson he just had that whole suicide scare i don't know if you heard about that Mm -hmm. but just yesterday or maybe it was two days ago he posted on his instagram that he no longer wants to be on this earth anymore and then he deleted his account and so everyone was like freaking out like where is he like we got to make sure he's safe people were sending out Mm -hmm. messages of love and i don't think he's spoken out since then i mean they i think he did show up at snl so we know that he's safe but Mm -hmm. i can imagine that for him i mean you know having just gone through a breakup having just been trolled by thousands of you know crazy ariana grande fans who are you know completely different intention than Ariana Grande herself who's been very good about the matter right. and being so deeply ingrained in the public eye that I think that can lead you to want to just end it all and just get out of this but the important thing I mean what you know Jim Carrey obviously has also struggled with depression and he had a really good piece of advice where he said like he said just go live out in nature for a year Go live out in a cabin in the woods for a year. Then you'll know what it really means to be alive. Right. And I think getting back to that that essential feeling of what it's like to be a human living off the land, like just living among nature and not wrapped up in the whole social media sandstorm and, you know, thinking about how other people think about you, but rather mm-hmm. just living and experiencing what there is to be experienced from a very like living in the present point of view. Yeah. That's a much, I mean, that's a great antidote to the sort of depression that's so common in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so just, I have a 
couple of questions to kind of sure. move, move on from this. So I was, um, one of the things we kind of want to talk about is burial practices and yeah. like, cremation. So I was, I was curious if you had any particular thoughts on, you know, we've talked about how we would want to die, but right. how do you want to be buried? Yeah, so if you look at different cultures and societies throughout history, it really falls into one of two categories. So burial or cremation. And mm-hmm. on the far one side of the extreme, you have the ancient Egyptians who went to in, in crazy measures to preserve the body for its journey mm-hmm. to the afterlife. They would literally mummify you with technology that is more advanced than what we have today as far as preservation. Uh-huh. And not only that, but they would bury all of your servants alongside you, your pets. They'd build a whole uh, vessel for you in the form of a pyramid or something like that. They would even put coins on your eyes so that you had a way of paying the ferryman to get you across to the other realm. So yeah. on that side, it's like really, really preserving the body. And then in the middle, you have something that's more like the typical American, like you, bur- you bury someone in a casket and then you can go and you can pay homage to that grave, which is mm-hmm. like pretty standard. On the other side, you have cremation, which in, you know, if, for instance, in the Indian Hindu uh, tradition, you would bury some, or sorry, you would burn someone on a funeral pyre and you would spread their ashes in the Ganges which was, you know, holy, holy water, holy river. Mm-hmm. And the difference of focus is very sharp. So by burying someone and preserving them as long as possible, you're really putting a lot of value in the body and basically prolonging their life even after they're dead. To <laughs> extent. Whereas in cremation, you really are accelerating the process by which your body is dispersed so that it can be used by the rest of the, mm-hmm. the earth. And so I'm very much a proponent of the cremation uh, process because if you're going to eventually become part of the earth and be renewed in the form of a tree or, you know, or a fish or whatever else, why not just go straight to that process? Why delay it and let yourself be you know, in a casket where the earth can't use you? for mm-hmm. decades like there just seems there's i mean i can see the desire to want to have a place where you can pay homage to the person before but there's yeah. actually a really good solution for that which is a startup and this startup will turn you into a tree so yeah. when you die you will be cremated the, the cremated ashes will then be used to help grow a tree and then your kids, your loved ones, your ancestors, they can come pay homage to that tree. And so you're contributing to the earth and you still have a place where people can come and they can lay down some flowers or say some, some prayers or whatever they need to. Yeah. See, I I really like the the startup that's doing that. I, what's the name? Do you, do you know what the name uh, of the startup is? I forget. I forget. Yeah, I've, I've heard of it before, but it's it's something that's really interesting to me. Um, so I I basically agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I wouldn't... I don't think the cremation route. I think, I think I would go more along the lines of I just want to be buried in the forest, kind of like how 
how tribal people might have just buried their loved ones just on the top layer of sand, not six feet down, but in the top layer when you have where you have all the mycelium, all the decomposers that would like naturally decompose your body and put them into in so mycelium is, has a network underground that can connect and give nutrients to all the plants that are in the surrounding area. So it would be more along uh, those lines where I would want to like just naturally decompose, maybe put myself in a little bit of a, a cloth, let whoever's going to decompose me decompose me, and that's it. But right. literally the last thing that I would want is to have my body pumped full of chemicals so I can have an open casket funeral. Like that yeah, is, yeah. I don't want that at all. I don't, the thing that I never want to play with in just as a general principle is I don't want to mess with the natural cycle of things. Yeah. Like if, if there is something that is supposed to happen in nature, I don't want to try to combat that. Right. I don't want to pump myself full of chemicals and then be buried in a casket. And it's almost like the mummification thing. You're just kind of like staying in the state of like, are you actually dead? Cause we don't know what happens after death. Right, right. Do you actually go into this state of nothingness? Like, do you just die and become nothing? Or is there something going on that we fundamentally can't understand because we're living? Is there some sort of merging with right. a greater conscious, like your consciousness gets into the, the grand consciousness of the earth and the cosmos. Like, I don't yeah. know. It's, it's one, one of those things where I would prefer to not play around with it at all and do things the way that things have been done naturally for a long time and yeah. burning it may be one of those things or maybe burning you know create it converts you to a gas you know and then you're not merged back with the soil see I, well i, I wouldn't know. really There's worry too much things. about that i mean yeah. it's also really hard to say what is natural and what is not because we are nature and we do uh -huh. things that are different than the rest of the species but does yeah. that make it not natural because we are nature so on that point i'm not totally certain but as a general principle, I think what you're getting at is spot on in that we should not combat the general course of things. And the words that come to mind for me are from a Beatles song, which okay. is turn off your mind, relax and float downstream, which was psychedelic inspired. But I think you could really take that advice for every major change in your stages of life. So think about when you're going through puberty and rather than clinging on to your childhood for dear life and hating the fact that you're getting pimples and erections and weird feelings and you don't know <laughs> if you love this girl or if you're just horny and you're like like rather than like combating that to just accept it turn off your mind relax and float downstream or in any stage of life like if you're about to get married, if you're about to have your first kids and you're going to be a father for the first time, if you're, you know, if you're dealing with your one of your parents' deaths, like any of these any of these major changes in your life, rather than combating it and clinging to whatever the previous state was, if you can just turn off your mind, relax and float downstream and go towards it, go towards the natural the natural domino effect that is our lives, right. that's a better way to live. Yeah.
Yeah, that's that's exactly you know what what I want to do right is not not go against all of these these things and there's the thing that's hard is we there's so much we don't know right so yeah. we can we can make all these assumptions about what's going to happen but ultimately we don't know so you know like like we've been saying maybe the best thing we can do is not go against what has been happening for millions of years or right. you know we don't even know how long the entire universe has been created maybe this is fundamental to the course of life in the universe right there's just there's just so much much stuff we don't know we should probably you know be on the safe side yeah so i think we should get into the future scenarios now because we've talked a lot about the different major questions of death and life and other people dying and how to deal with it i think it'd be good now to talk about the worst case, best case, and most likely future scenarios. Worst case scenario. So, in your mind, what is the worst case scenario for the future of death? So, I don't think, at least in a lot of the modern world, that we're that far away from the worst case, because I think we're so detached whether this is detached from the death of the meat that you eat or detached from the death of your loved ones because like we're just hanging on to life basically we're not we're not fully accepting of the fact that we're going to die and i think one of the hard things too especially as you know a futurist is it would be awesome to live forever but i just think we're so we can, we can be um detached in a way that's harmful and kind of puts us in the denial phase and keeps us in the denial phase for the foreseeable future so i actually think that it can get much much worse than it is right now okay and given technology that has not yet been created so the way i'm looking forward is like in the future there is a non-negligible chance that we will create something like San Junipero, the episode in Black Mirror, where they have basically a way, basically a digital heaven in a hard drive where you can transfer someone's consciousness out of their mind into this hard drive and they can live on in bliss. And in the Black Mirror scenario, they're able to kill themselves at some point, you know, unplug from this mm-hmm. if they decide. So in that, my, my worst case scenario is not San Junipero. It's a similar situation where you cannot turn off the plug, where you're forced to live forever. Mm-hmm. Because that, I think, actually would be the worst thing of all, is if you can never, the journey never stops. Because it's yeah. hard to have anything have meaning if you, if you, if there's never any end to this tale. Right. So that would be my worst case scenario. And of course, you could make it even worse by having it be, you know, eternal suffering. Like, let's say in the case of this one AI conspiracy where any person that tries to go against AI's development, once AI becomes super intelligent and all powerful, it will make every person that went against it live in an eternal hell, like a digital hell of torment. So I don't know how I mean, I think that's frankly ridiculous. So I'm not saying that that's plausible, but I'm saying if we're actually going for like, what's the worst possible scenario? Yeah. I think it really is. And 
you know, even in Harry Potter, the biggest sacrifice that Harry made at the end of the series is to mm-hmm. give up the ability to die. And that yeah. was his that was his big sacrifice. So I think in the same way, that would be the biggest sacrifice or the worst case scenario for any person. <laughs> yeah, that I mean that you know, that is definitely way worse than the scenario I outlined. I yeah. guess my my scenario would actually be more towards the likely case. You know, with yeah. with the likely case, there's always the there's going to be some cultures that really do, or some countries or cultures that deal with death better than others. Yeah. Um, Let's go into the best case scenario now. Best case scenario. So I would say it's kind of what you were describing as San Junipero, but um, well, there's a couple things. So there, there is a way that maybe we could cyborg ourselves. So we do have some sort of conscious, like our, our biological bodies die, but we kind of merge into a cyborg type of um, organism where we can, we don't have the limits of biological life and we kind of have this merging beyond the universal universal biological consciousness and move towards like a a merged consciousness of technological beings and we could even live long enough to explore the cosmos and explore the universe and figure out what these deep fundamental mysteries are are because i think one of the we have now is we don't live long enough to make truly breakthrough discoveries. I mean, we we're making progress, but I think at some point progress will be a lot faster if Einstein could be alive for 500 years working on cracking the code uh, or cracking the mysteries of the cosmos. Yeah. I think your answer is true if the assumption is that it's better is that people will enjoy living for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's true. I'm not sure that it's false either, but right. I, I've, and I've actually kind of changed my view on this since I know we've talked about this in previous episodes, but I would be surprised if people enjoyed living for 500 years. I think it's likely that people would want to live for maybe 200 years, maybe 250. I don't know if the human psyche could, could, could enjoyably live for much longer than that. So my best case scenario is A, we cure aging and B, everyone gets to decide when they want to die. And Mm. that would probably be something like people living totally healthy lives for 150 years, 200 years. And then maybe when they get to around 250 years old, by that time, most people are like, you know what? My time has come. I've lived a good life. I've decided that now is well how my story will when my story will end. And I think the reason I chose curing aging as the big tech disruption is that right now all of our you know the vast majority of our health expenditure is on 
fixing stuff once it's already broken. But the root yeah. cause of all of the breaking is aging, the process of aging. Yeah. And so there are some really exciting new technological advances or studies being done right now to combat aging that are really exciting. So I'll just name three of them really briefly. Mm-hmm. So one of them is targeting senescent cells. So basically with your DNA, you know, you can imagine the double helixes and every time your DNA cells replicate, it takes a little bit of the end of the string from the other one. So over time, your DNA cells get worn down and you can almost imagine it like a shoelace where you have like the hard parts at the end that kind of keep it all together called and they're called telomeres. And your telomeres wear down over time. And once they've completely worn down, they turn into senescent cells. And that is one of the big correlations with all sorts of diseases. And so they did a study with mice where basically they targeted senescent cells and the mice could live lived 30% longer than the other mice in the control group. And they had a much better health span, so they were much healthier. And yeah. uh, so that's one really promising possibility. There's, There's also a lot of cool things there too, because I mean, it's really easy to target senescent cells in a in a basic sense. So we talked about in the future of um, health and mortality, and health and mortality, um, how restricting calories is the number one thing you can do for aging. Right, when right. you restrict calories, that's when your body is in its natural repairing phase and it will go through and clean up all the cells that are either dead or almost dead. And senescent cells are kind of like zombie cells. Like yeah. they're just there accumulating a whole bunch of uh, inflammation and side, like there's, there's a lot of bad things that they cause, but they're not doing anything. They're just right, there right. Um, like zombies. Um, but yeah, restricting your calories and some people talk about, you know, intermittent fasting sometimes or big, yeah. long five day fasts. Well, I feel like the, the reason that that works, restricting your fasting is cause it, you're doing less metabolizing well, and yeah. metabolizing yeah. is one of the, like you only have so much metabolizing you can do in a lifespan, just mm-hmm. like you only have so many breaths you can take in a lifespan. So if you live your life frantically rapidly breathing you're going to live a much shorter life whereas if you take slow meditative inhales and exhales you're going to live a longer life and this is proven mm-hmm. um, so that's one big uh, po- possibility nad plus is another one which is basically an enzyme that is important for cell health and as we age we produce less and less of these so there's a 2016 study also with mice where they basically just injected them with additional NAD plus enzymes and it resulted in producing more skin, brain and muscle cells and slightly longer lifespan. And this is interesting because you can actually digest it. So this was this could be the first anti-aging pill that comes out on the market. Hmm. And then the third one is one that I'm sure everyone's aware of, which is stem cells. And so Stem cells are basically cells that can turn into any cell that we want. So they're the fundamental cell that starts in a fetus and grows into all sorts of stuff, bones, muscles, white blood cells, whatever. And so 
these decline also as we age. So in one study, they injected older mice with the stem cells taken from younger mice directly into their brain. And after four months, their brain and muscles worked way significantly better than the other mice, and they lived 10% longer. And then they did another study where they injected it into the heart instead of the brain, and that allowed their hair to regrow much faster, interestingly, and they also had a moderately better health span and lifespan. So in my best case scenario, through one of these methods or maybe some new method that hasn't been devised yet, we will cure aging, people will live healthy lives well into their 100s, and then they basically get to decide when they want to die, when is the right time for them, and hopefully they can have that ideal experience that I talked about earlier where it's like, you know, sudden cardiac arrest while meditating after having gone through the stages, after having, a, you know, being at peace and accepting the fact that now is the time that you've chosen to die. So I guess we should go into the most likely now. Most likely scenario. Yeah, well, turns out I accidentally answered most likely. Because <laughs> <laughs> your worst case was definitely, definitely yeah. the worst case. Um, so I'll, I'll stick with my answer of um, not having that much of a difference from where we are now. But then there's also the other cultures that have their unique practices when it comes to death. Like there's this one Indonesian, let me try to figure out what the, the island name was. I had it written down. Is it Bali? Because Bali has interesting practices. To, so the so this island called Toraja, I think, is, ah. I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, T-O-R-A-J-A. Um, but the the, some of the tribes on this island will unbury their dead and, you know, yeah, wash they them. they do that in and, Bali, too. Okay, yeah. So we got to see un- a ceremony. That's really, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, they pull yeah. out their, you know, their dead relatives from the ground and then they yeah. give them flowers. It's, it's very... I think very it's pretty unique. whacked, personally. It is. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I personally wouldn't do this practice. But the point is, we're going to, I think, in the likely scenario, we we continue to see all these diverse views on what it is. Like, I don't think it'll converge onto something. Yeah, Um, no, I agree with that. I mean, my, my most likely scenario is many different ways of dealing with death. And I think on the one hand, you're going to see people like, you know, in Silicon Valley, the TV show, the guy, uh, you know, the main like antagonist, who has the blood boy with him and he's injecting himself with the blood of a young, healthy, strapping man. I think we're going to see a lot of, of wealthy people using stem cells and blood cells and basically just doing whatever they can to prolong life indefinitely. And that is going to cause some weird philosophical challenges and it's going to be strange And we are going to have people, on the other hand, who take the more idyllic approach where maybe like this startup that puts, you know, grows you into a tree and really accepting death and 
you know, psychedelic end of life care. I think all of that is going to increase as a trend also. So I think we are going to see that increase in people's acceptance of death. And then we're going to see everything in between. I mean, like you said, there's super weird burial practices on, in Indonesia as compared to America, as compared to India. And yeah, so there's definitely going to be a wealth of ways to die and, and cultures. And it's up to us to choose that what's the way that we subscribe to. And it doesn't have to be the culture that you live in. I think it's important to see all the different possibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. All right. Are there any final thoughts that you have for, for our listeners? This has been quite a morbid, but I hope helpful episode. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like we started with. It's useful to think about. And, and yeah. what I would kind of reiterate now is don't wait for some sort of morbid news in your life to make the change that you want to make. Right. Oh, I realized two, I realized two questions we never got to was about suicide and euthanasia. Yeah. We kind of touched a little bit on suicide. Yeah. Let's, Um, let's just give a real brief answer to that because I think it's interesting. So the two questions are when is suicide justified and when is euthanasia justified? So with, suicide that's a really hard question um because there are people that are personally suffering a lot but like i also said humans are extremely resilient they can get past whatever it is that they're going through in the moment and it's hard to see beyond that when you're in this this phase right so i i don't think it's one of those things that you you like hastily jump to some sort of solution And, and it's hard to see out of that sometimes. But the what I would say, though, is I don't think Aldous Huxley did anything wrong because right. he was towards the end of his life and he wanted to go his own way. Like yeah. there's, there's a lot... It's I don't want to project my thoughts, you know, to because every, everybody lives different experiences. But I also think that everybody can get out of whatever it is they're getting out of if you're not in some sort of mortal state right it is interesting when you view different famous suicides and whether you would condone them or say that they were wrong like Mm -hmm. for me when i look at the suicide of let's say ernest hemingway and hemingway we now know had been diagnosed with a brain a chronic Mm -hmm. brain condition where it wasn't going to get any better he knew this is what had killed his father and his grandfather and it just gets worse and worse until it eats away your mind and then you there's tons of pain and he had just recently found out that he had this he had lived a full life written lots of great books and for all we know he was he had made a clear level-headed decision he put the shotgun to his mouth and he ended it Mm -hmm. and i think that is something that's more admissible and then you know because there is some nobility in deciding that now is the time for you to die knowing Mm -hmm. that you will lose part of who you are by letting yourself continuing to degrade especially if you have a chronic condition that involves immense pain something that i do not condone is for instance the suicide of david foster wallace so david foster wallace he 
you know, famous writer, uh, Infinite Jest and other books. Mm-hmm. So he was hanging out with a group of people. He was working on this manuscript, his next magnum opus, which he was just really concerned about, anxious about. And when his friends went to the grocery store, they came back and they found him hanging in the garage with his manuscript beneath his feet. And this was so clearly a rash decision. It was not made with a level head. And it came from a place of undue concern. You know, he was such a, he was so concerned with his writing and with getting everything to be perfect in the way that he envisioned it, that when he felt like his manuscript wasn't matching up to his expectations, he decided to kill himself. And I don't think that you can condone that. So I think the key difference on whether suicide is justified or not is whether you're making it from a place of level-headed, you know, it's a reasonable decision. It's you're preventing some further degradation. I think suicide is basically never justified if you're, you know, under the, you know, if you're still developing, like if you're under the age of like 40 and you're healthy, it's pretty much never justified. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, if if you're healthy, you can get around it. And I think it's unfortunate the way that um, the U.S., at least historically, has dealt with mental illness. I think we're getting a lot better now. Thank goodness. Right. Um, but yeah, if if you're healthy, you can get over whatever it is that that you're going through. So yeah, I, I completely agree yeah. with that. And I think with well, euthanasia is pretty much the same answer, right? So it's like if if you can tell that this person they're not having some emotional outburst, they really have thought about it, and they've decided that they do not want to go on any longer, that they've lived a full life that they're going to continue to degrade. They don't want to become that degraded person. They don't want to suffer unnecessarily for additional months. And the other thing that I'll say on euthanasia is that we oftentimes let people die, so we're basically killing them by omission of medical help. So oftentimes if someone says, you know, this person's brain dead, they have pretty much no chance of coming back, you know, do you want to sign this and say that we let them die? You know, they'll sign that. And then we basically just let them starve to death or die of thirst. We just stop giving them the means to survive. Mm -hmm. Whereas if instead you could give them 100 milligrams, you know, mescaline, intramuscular, along with, you know, some cocktail or like that might be a much easier, better way to go. You let them die Mm -hmm. with more dignity they can still be have some sort of clear-headedness as they're going on their final journey. Yeah. So I, I mean, obviously it's a slippery slope. Like once you allow a little bit, like there's a lot of things that could go wrong, especially if it's someone who's a public figure, and you know, I'm sure yeah. there are conspiracy concerns. But by and large, if people are well-intentioned, and you're talking about doctors who take their job seriously. If we look at it from that lens, I think euthanasia can be a great way of reducing suffering and increasing the dignity of death. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. And and we don't have a problem, you know, euthanizing dogs if they're in pain and they can't walk. You know, I think, right, right. Some, I think sometimes people are, they work, they do that a little prematurely, uh, depend, you know, depending on the situation. Yeah. Um, but the edge cases are really interesting here. So if you are a vegetable, 
and you can't talk, you can't do anything, you're basically just in a coma, what decisions do you make? You know, because there are those cases where someone was in a coma for six months and then woke up. Right, or there are right. there are cases where someone was in a coma and never woke up. So what what kind of mental state were those people in in their comas? Right. And it could be possible that they were in just complete agony the whole time, or it could be possible that they were in complete bliss the whole time. Right. Like one of the one of the interesting things to talk about here is like near death experiences and how when people come back from that, what do they think and what what did they say about their experience and one one that really sticks out to me is um there was there was a study you know just a survey study asking people about their near-death experiences and supposedly one of the top responses was there was just this this infiniteness like this this total disregard for time like it, Mm. it just felt like you were there for infinity and then yeah. you come back up and it was it was really enjoyable the whole time so you know i, I don't i'm not really go, going anywhere in particular with this statement but i do want to make the point that we don't necessarily know what's going on in the right of, and i think this some, gets back to how we started the podcast which is that thinking about death is useful in so far mm-hmm. as it can help you focus on that which matters most in your life and not get yeah. sidetracked by very small bumps mm. along the road. And, right. you know, one thing that you'll hear sometimes yogis and gurus say is that I've died a thousand times already. You know, they're, <laughs> they're ready. They've gone through the process of thinking about death, going through the denial all the way to acceptance. So if each mm-hmm. of us can live with that acceptance with us and to recognize that all our fellow beings are going to die someday and that it's really special that we're all living here together in this moment and that, that we should value that. I think that we'll live in a much better we're world. We're all gathered here today yep, to talk about three very important things. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening. We're going to talk about what has death. happened, what is currently happening, and what will inevitably happen. The past, the present, and the future.